The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. I consider it necessary to take a long overdue decision to immediately recognize the independence and sovereignty of the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic. We demand for those who took over and retained the power in Kiev to immediately stop combat activity. Otherwise, the responsibility for continuing the bloodshed will lay on the shoulders of the Ukrainian regime. Asian equities slide and US futures plunge as the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, orders forces into rebel-held regions of eastern Ukraine. Ukraine most certainly considers these last Russian actions as the violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of our country. President Biden places, uh, signs an executive order to place sanctions on the breakaway regions and vows more to come along with the UK and the EU. HSBC brings forward its profitability target by year as annual profits more than double and the lender says rising rates will boost the bottom line. And the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson scraps all Covid restrictions in England but warns it's not yet time to declare victory over the pandemic. The pandemic is not over and there may be significant resurgences. Our scientists are certain that there will be new variants and it is very possible that those will be worse than Omicron. Good morning, everybody. Let's just tell you what's going on then, the latest uh, in the... Uh Ukraine-Russia dispute. The Russian president now, Vladimir Putin, has ordered the deployment of troops to eastern Ukraine after recognizing two Moscow-backed separatist regions. Now, the Russian leader says troops are entering rebel-held regions of Donbass and Luhansk for peacekeeping operations. Let me just explain to you a little bit about this region as well before we move on as well, because this is the region that we're talking about. Crimea, of course, uh, Ukraine says it is still part of their sovereign territory. And this is the area where in 2014, uh, the Russians annexed uh, Crimea uh, after having invaded. This is the rebel held area, this here of Luhansk, uh, and Donetsk as well. These areas in these eastern regions, and this is very important, these areas in these eastern regions are held by uh, forces backed by the Kiev government, by Ukrainian uh, military as well. And here is a heavy militarized line between the, Ru uh, the Russian-backed separatist areas uh, and indeed the Kiev-backed uh, majority areas, around about a third, two-third as well. And why is that significant? Why am I saying that? Because if the Russian president uh, is recognizing these regions uh, as being separatist regions in their own right as well, then of course that throws into doubt what Russian forces will or won't do uh, in these areas that are currently held by Kiev. And that's very important as well. So Mr. Putin has justified his actions by drawing on history as he addressed the Russian nation. Soviet Ukraine arose thanks to Bolshevik policy. And today it can be still with good reason called Vladimir Ilyich Lenin's Ukraine. He's the author and the architect. It's completely and entirely confirmed by archive documents, including Lenin's bold directives on Donbass, 
which was literally stuffed into the body of Ukraine. And now thankful descendants have demolished Lenin monuments in Ukraine. They call it decommunizing. You want to be decommunized? Well, we're quite fine with that. But don't stop halfway, as they say. We're ready to show you what decommunizing Ukraine really means. Significant developments in the past 24 hours because the move may have halted progress towards a diplomatic solution, accelerating a crisis that the West fears could unleash a major war. But Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky sought to project calm amid growing tensions, telling the nation that Ukraine is not afraid of anyone or anything. There are now absolutely no reasons for chaotic actions. We will do everything to keep it this way further on. We stick with the peaceful and diplomatic way. We'll only walk this way. We are at our land, and we are not afraid of anything and anyone. We don't owe anything to anyone. We won't give away anything to anyone. We are confident in this. Putin's announcement drew immediate condemnation from the US and Europe. President Biden signed an executive order banning new investment and trade with the separatist regions, while saying the measures are in addition to severe economic sanctions should Russia invade further. Meanwhile, presidents of the European Commission and European Council called the incursion a blatant violation of international law, vowing the union will react with sanctions against those involved, while the United Kingdom says it will announce sanctions on Russia today. Well, let's take a look at the market reaction. Don't forget, this time yesterday, we had markets rebounding, futures indicating a positive session ahead for these markets for the trading week. Don't forget, we were shut yesterday for President's Day. And this time yesterday, we were talking about the prospect of a summit between Biden and Putin. But some of that hope now fading and the development seemed to be causing markets to take fright. A lot of safe haven buying at this point. You can see that as a negative tone right across on the S&P, the Dow and the Nasdaq. That did actually show some red in that Friday trade as well. So we're looking at a, a fourth potential negative session for the likes of the Dow and the Nasdaq. I want to take you to the European close, a rollercoaster ride for our markets yesterday as a result of these developments. We had some early green on hopes of a further diplomatic solution, a conversation between the two leaders. But at this stage, you can see markets then pricing in some of the developments across the course of the day in the French market down 2% along with stocks in Germany very similar retreat so it really was a, a day of two halves to these markets the other major ones you could see a pullback on Italian stocks 1.7% down slightly more contained in the mix really was the FTSE you could see traveling south by about four tenths of a percent but the flip story here has been the oil price the escalation we have witnessed in WTI and Brent and that's of course support for a lot of those big energy stocks. Uh, we have rallied hard. You can see morning session up 3% on WTI. Brent travelling up 2%. I mentioned yesterday we'd had a, a loss-making week for the oil complex last week, the first one in two months, as investors were judging the developments around Russia, Ukraine, looking at the Iran situation, whether there'd been negotiations. And there were hopes that we were getting to the point where maybe we'd topped out on some of the pricing. But look at that, 97.31 this morning on that Brent price. I want to take you to the Asian market. Markets also reeling, and you can see it as risk off right across the region. Falls for Australia 1%. China is down, Hong Kong down 3.2%. 
Other developments at play here and concerns about a fresh assault from regulators against some of the big tech names. And that's undermined some of those uh, high growth areas of the market again. Hence the, the big four we're seeing 774 points. But the geopolitical risk that we've been talking about, the Nikkei has come up to 1.7%. Worth noting though, some of the safe haven flows have been concentrated around the Swissy, not necessarily the yen this point. And if you'd seen more of it, perhaps we would be seeing a steeper fall on Tokyo stocks at this point. Let me take you to the opening calls here in Europe. This is how we approached another week session anticipated. 281 points down for the Italian market so far. Triple digit point loss anticipated for the German stock market too. So we are in retreat, uh, seems to be the message this morning. Jeff. Thanks very much, Karen. Let's get on to some of the diplomacy. An urgent meeting of the UN Security Council has taken place following Putin's recognition of separatist regions of eastern Ukraine. A spokesperson for the group's secretary general called out Russia's decision to recognise Donetsk and Luhansk as separate regions of Ukraine as a, quote, violation of the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. But what about the reaction? Are we going to see some unified response here, particularly from bodies like the EU? Let's get to Sylvia, who's uh, in contact with uh, many of the principals. Sylvia, at this stage, uh, we've only had the suggestion of increased sanctions, and we heard the German Chancellor yesterday saying Perhaps now is not the right time to show our hand on what these sanctions might look like. But since then, obviously, we've seen this uh, provocative action by President Putin. Are we going to hear today firm details on the next level of sanctions for Russia? Perhaps not firm details, but some details for sure. And the reason behind that, Jeff, is because European ambassadors are meeting at around 9.30 Brussels time in an emergency meeting. We also know that there's the possibility of European leaders gathering in Brussels for the extraordinary summit after different heads of state also said that they want to convene and they want to discuss these latest tensions with Russia. And so let's see whether the EU will actually unveil some detail in terms of sanctions later today. But on Monday, the EU's foreign affairs chief, Joseph Borrell, he did describe and he did say that if Russia were to indeed recognize these two regions in the eastern part of Ukraine, then the EU would be putting forward new sanctions, that he would put forward these sanctions to the ministers and then they would have to say whether they want to move ahead with them. And we know from the last 24 hours that indeed some ministers and some European capitals do want to go ahead with these sanctions. So let's see whether or not that will be the case. But indeed, tensions are running high in European circles. There were a lot of diplomatic talks on Monday in the aftermath of that announcement from President Putin. And one of the question marks here is uh, indeed what will be the reaction from the European Union in terms of their practical actions. And I want to show you one tweet, one comment from the Prime Minister of Lithuania, um, just because it really highlights what's at stake here for the European Union as well. She said essentially that whatever the EU uh, reacts, how the EU reacts and responds to these uh, latest developments will define us for generations 
to come. So this is not an easy moment for the European leaders. Let's see how far they are indeed willing to go. But from the meetings that I've had in Brussels, from being there uh, last week, the feeling is very much that they are united in their message and they will do whatever it takes at this moment to indeed protect Ukraine and its sovereignty. So let's see indeed what's going to happen, what sort of comment we'll get later today. But for the timing, from a European perspective, all eyes are on that ambassador meeting at 9.30 Brussels time. Sylvia, just on the um, different relationships that countries have with Russia and consequently how willing they will be to go for a tougher line here. I mean, it, it's barely weeks since we saw major Italian companies sitting down and holding a video conference with the, the Russian president. Uh, we know some it, Italian companies have a strong trading relationship with Russia. And of course, uh, there is the issue of Germany it's, and its reliance on energy. Do we, do we get any sense of the willingness of many of these parties that have maybe closer relations to set those aside for the common good, if you like, and for a unified position on foreign policy with Russia? That's a very good question. Indeed, in Italy, there's that disparity in a way between what the government is saying and what some companies are actually doing and their relationship with Russian officials. Now, I have to say, though, that the comments from the Prime Minister Mario Draghi are in line with other European leaders. And the question mark for me here is actually what will Hungary do, uh, Jeff? Because we know that the Hungarian government has a softer line towards Russia in comparison with other European capitals. But I actually posed that question to the EU's foreign affairs chief when I was in Brussels last week, whether these, this united response that they're talking about also includes Hungary. And his response was indeed that all member states, all the 27, are indeed on the same page when it comes to reacting to further aggression from Russia. But indeed, let's see whether or not that will be the case. The, the talks that are happening today will indeed shed light on this unity, on how fast the EU is ready to go in terms of sanctions, because the United States has already talked about it. The United Kingdom will announce sanctions today. So let's see whether or not the EU will be as fast, because that, of course, will also raise questions about the EU's role in international politics, and in this case, vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, and I just want to make one final comment as well, that it's important to also look at the corporates and what they're saying. And when I was in Brussels as well last week, one European official did tell me that some companies are worried about the potential sanctions that the EU will impose. Um, for instance, Finnish companies could have also a lot of implications uh, from uh, the EU's response to this crisis. But nonetheless, some corporates in Europe are not worried about that in the sense that they believe that these sanctions are necessary and that indeed the EU needs to step up. So indeed, there are some different rhetorics from uh, companies across the EU. But uh, for the time being, it's important to see how the government, how the politics will function here. OK, Sylvia, thank you very much indeed for that update. OK, well, coming up on the show, we'll also continue our coverage of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, but also look ahead to US data due this week, including the latest crucial read on inflation. And for more on the fast-developing situation in Ukraine, check out the Scorebox podcast, available in all the usual places, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back, everybody. U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack believes a potential Russian invasion could have knock-on effects on European produce. He spoke to CNBC on the margins of the Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate, a global initiative led by Washington and the UAE. The impact's going to be more in Europe, um, and that may have a rippling impact and effect, uh, particularly in fertilizer costs. Right now, fertilizer costs are at a very, very high level. Uh, there, there may very be multiple reasons for that. Uh, and this may exacerbate uh, that, that situation. Uh, but from a standpoint of supplies and that, uh, I don't think it will be as impactful in the U.S. as it might be in Europe. So you're saying sanctions on Russia wouldn't impact food security, for example? Well, it, uh, again, it would, it, there is a significant opportunity in a situation involving the disruption that could happen in Ukraine which would impact and potentially imp- affect their productivity, which in turn has an impact on Europe because there is a dependency there and a, and a trading relationship. That's where the, the, the potential difficulties might be. That doesn't necessarily directly impact the U.S., uh, but it does impact Europe. Well, let's bring Sir Andrew Wood into the conversation. Sir Andrew was the former U.K. ambassador to Russia between 1995 and 2000, and we welcome him uh, at this hour. Sir Andrew, has the announcement from President President Putin that we've heard about recognising the separatist regions now made the prospect of de-escalation much less likely? What's your read on that? Yes, well, if it, it shows that uh, Putin is absolutely untrustworthy. It shows that he's a total hypocrite. That's not news, though. I don't see any advantage to Russia in what he's done. I do see huge disadvantage to Ukraine. But at least one can know that the Minsk agreement that he was talking about is now written off. So we're in a state of some anarchy. In your opinion, what is the right measured response from Washington and Brussels at this stage? Well, that's very hard to tell, but some sort of reaction Increased sanctions of some sort is certainly appropriate. Um, If we were being really fierce, we would throw the whole lot at him. Because what he will do is to put his own troops, or more of his own troops to be more accurate, in that region, thereby moving the the military pressure on Ukraine considerably further into Ukraine. Nobody knows where he's going to stop, 
that the logic is that he's going to stop when he's got total control over the politics, at least, of Ukraine. And that means he's installed his own regime in, in Ukraine to try to rule the, the, the country. That is the logic, to do the same sort of thing as he has been doing with and to Belarus to absorb uh, both countries under his control. That's always been his aim anyway. Sir Andrew, is diplomacy dead at this point? I mean, same time yesterday we're talking about hopes of uh, a summit between Putin and Biden brokered by uh, French President Emmanuel Macron. Is that all off the table at this point? In my view, yes. In my view, it never had much of a prospect anyway. Uh, the difficulty is that we've been talking mostly about the, the formal Russian demands, which is the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. But that is actually just an excuse for the Russians to uh, leave Ukraine unprotected so that they can move forward with their own demand, which is that Kiev should obey Moscow. Sir Andrew, can you talk about the international condemnation so far and where Russia stands in that context? Because Europe has been talking about sanctions, of course, along with the Americans. Japan came out in response today. We had a couple of mixed messages from the Chinese. Can you just walk us through how this impacts Russia? Well, it impacts Russia in over a, a fairly slowish time. Uh, Russia has huge uh, savings which it could have been used for its own good, but it's, it's got several months at least, if not years, of being able to resist sanctions, apart from the uh, um, Nord Stream 2. Um, and I think apart from the restrictions on Russian banks and so on that we were proposing to introduce, uh, it would be more the effect on Russian public opinion. You have to remember that the Russian people absolutely don't want war. You have to remember that they are living under strict control, putting it politely, I would think of it as tyranny, from, from the Kremlin, and that uh, there is a certain fear within the Russian leadership of what their own people might, might do. There is certainly no support for an invasion of Ukraine in the Russian people. But of course, his propaganda is very effective. And they do tend to believe that we are the guilty party, that we are trying to put pressure on Russia, that we are a threat to Russia, and so on. So it's, I'm not saying there's going to be an immediate Russian rebellion, but this is going to be a further blow to the real control of the Russian regime over its people. Sir Andrew, um, there's been a lot of criticisms, some justified, others not, about NATO over the last few years. We heard the previous administration very aggressive against what it saw as underspending from many NATO members, namely Germany. We've heard criticism more recently from France and saying, can the EU have its own force as well? And justified criticisms uh, over the relationship of Turkey uh, within NATO as well. Although in the short term, it looks like President Putin uh, is achieving his goals. Longer term, is he going to actually strengthen NATO or is that a forlorn hope? No, I, I, I think his, his long-term uh, prospects are pretty, pretty dim. 
NATO is, is not a cohesive and united organization. That is true. But NATO as NATO has been pretty firm on this aspect and pretty united, I think, more than he expected. But uh, it's we haven't got forces in Ukraine to, to use. We're not going to use force, NATO forces against him in that res respect. The best we, we can do in terms of sheer force is to prevent him moving any further. Sir Andrew, in terms of the Ukrainian response, uh, not only in Luhansk and Donetsk, but obviously militarily and how prepared it was, I was there in Kiev during the annexation in 2014, and, and pretty much the Russian military had been gutted by the Russian puppet and basically disemboweled. How good is the Russian, as I beg pardon, the, Aust the Ukrainian military now to stand up to the Russians now? Uh, obviously, you say we haven't got troops on the ground from NATO, but they have had NATO training. They have had uh, defensive weapons deployed by NATO members as well. Can it make a fist of a fight against Russia, or actually will Russia just literally steamroll its way to Kiev if indeed it wants to? No, I think the, the Ukrainians will certainly uh, certainly fight. One of the most striking thing changes about the period between 2014 and now is the depth of the uh, commitment of Ukrainians against Russia. There is a lot said about the personal relationship between Ukrainians and Russians, which is, um, in principle, quite relaxed and friendly. There's a lot of intermarriage and so on and so forth. But the Russians have, in effect, been at war with Ukraine for the last eight years. The idea that they're now the Ukrainians are now going to simply fold and accept a Russian regime imposed upon them in in Kiev, I think it's, it's not going to be like that at all. This will have an effect on the feeling within Russia uh, about their um, actions. Uh, if the Russians can walk in with flying flags in, in a couple of weeks or something like that, which I think is most unlikely, that would be one thing. Putin had a big boost, as you, as you will recall, in 2014 for seizing Ukraine uh, without bloodshed. I, I, I would confess to you, I do not understand what the hell he's doing. It's, it's no advantage to Russia to have control over Ukraine. It would be every advantage to Russia to uh, have a, a good, productive relationship with that country. The trouble is everything is now decided by Putin. Putin is, is filled with um, something very close to hatred now of Ukraine and particularly no doubt by uh, uh, its president who is an ex-comedian. He's, he's just not taken seriously by, by Russia as uh, someone with rights uh, and a position in the world. And Putin is a man who's been in office for too long. He's fed on resentment within Russia at the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. And he relies for advice or agreement, more like it, 
um, by a, a narrow group of people who are even more obsessed with the idea that Russia has been cheated by the world and it's got to have its revenge. So I think there's a lot of element of it as crude as that. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.